Uh, you can open your Bibles to James 5, and we're going to launch from that text into the book of Job in a few minutes. Uh, but I just want to say that I, it's, been, it's been such a blessing to me to be able to be here. And uh, I've never actually worshipped with a church that um, meets in, in like a hotel sort of circumstance. I've heard about churches that do that in Boston. I've heard about churches that do things similar to that in New York. And so this is my first exposure to the kind of work that all of you do here. And it's, uh, it's really been cool to see what uh, all of you guys have been doing together and the work that's been put into to everything. And so uh, I told the church at Santee when I get back, I'll have to say some things about this kind of work. Because I, the, in California, folks aren't as exposed to other churches across the United States because we're kind of like on an island almost. Like everything, it's as far away from everything. And so whenever I can, I like to try to tell everybody back home uh, the kind of work that's happening other places and stuff like that. So uh, I, I praise God for what you guys are doing, and I'm thankful for uh, the time that I could spend with all of you. We're going to be in James 5. And uh, before we read a couple verses from this, what we're looking at in this lesson is the steadfastness of Job or the patience of Job is a phrase that sometimes people use. But there's a variety of trials and difficulties that people can go through. We looked at the, how Jesus was kind of like an example in his suffering in the last lesson. When we look at Job, we're going to see more specifically the kinds of trials people can go through that can cause them to kind of fade when it comes to living out their purpose. So God has left examples for us of people in Scripture that give us strength to keep doing what we're supposed to do. Have you ever had a time before, though, where... You were explaining your struggle to somebody, and then they kind of one-upped your struggling. You know what I mean by that? Where he, Let's just say, hypothetically, it's a high school person who the girlfriend breaks up with, with him, and he's heartbroken. And then somebody comes along and says, well, that's not the same as 30 years of marriage. That's hard, too. And it's like, well, that doesn't really help for you to try to one-up me like that. Uh, and so... Whatever you guys have going on in your life, and I don't know what it is for you, but if you guys have something that's hard for you, it's hard for you because of your life experiences, because of your past, because of where God has brought you up to that point in your life. And the question is, well, what, is, what kind of things does God leave us with in Scripture to help us work through some of those kinds of things? Look at James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. It says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We learn from the first verse right now at Santee, I'm preaching through the book of James. And so I've been thinking more about this right now. But we learn from the first verse of the book of James that the nation, or that the people that he's writing to have been scattered like across the homeland. And that's actually an agricultural term, like for a seed to be scattered so that it can sprout up in different places. If you were to read through the book of James and look for agricultural imagery, the Christians are described in agricultural terms several times throughout the book. And so it's James is kind of conceptualizing these people as scattered seed. Well, go back to the book of Isaiah. Do you remember the imagery of being like a cypress or a myrtle tree, that God has made us to be his pleasant planting, things like that? The book of James has 54 commands in the book. It's just a bunch of commands. And you have to ask, well, why? Why do they have to be so obedient? Is it so they can save themselves? No, it's because God, God's already saved them. But it's so that they can be that myrtle tree that sprouts up. 
And so if you were to read, again, through the whole book, you'd see that they're going through all kinds of trials. And towards the end of the book, he says, all right, one of the things that I want you guys to do is consider the prophets. And there would be like Jeremiah, Isaiah, you'd have Elijah, Elisha, the kind of suffering that they went through. But he specifically in verse 11 mentions Job. And he says about Job in verse 11 that you should know from the book of Job that God is compassionate and merciful. By the way, when you read the book of Job, is that the first thing you think of is, oh yeah, God's compassionate and merciful. We'll talk about that at the end of the lesson. We'll, so we'll come back to that. But that's not my first thought about, about Job. But we do see <clears throat> that Job was steadfast. You know that ancient Greek god, I think it was a Greek god, uh, Atlas, that's holding up the world on his shoulders. When I think of steadfastness, that's the imagery that I get in my mind. Like bearing up under something really, really heavy. And James is saying, you guys are kind of like that right now, but don't cave in. And interestingly enough, when he says in verses 10 and 11 to a suffering audience that we want you to consider the prophets. Do you know what uh, like a paraphrase of that is? James is saying when you're going through deep suffering, one of the things that's going to help you is deep Bible study. You see that? Consider the prophets. Like go back and read what they had to say. Go back and think about what they went through. My first thought in the midst of suffering and trials is just to pray a lot. Prayer is great, but not to the neglect of deep Bible study too. Both of those things have to go together. So we're going to try to do what this verse tells us to do, verses 10 and 11. We're going to go back to the book of Job and see how the book of Job can help us remain steadfast as we live out our purpose. So go back to Job chapter 1, and we're going to work through some of the text of Job. And... Uh, we know from the first like five verses or so that Job was from the land of Uz, which is kind of a cool name. Uh, that's not a territory in the nation of Israel. If you were going to place the historical setting of the book of Job, it would probably be after the flood and then before the Tower of Babel, before the call of Abraham, maybe somewhere around there. And so Job is not an Israelite per se, but he's like a child of Abraham because he has the same faith as Abraham. So even though he might not be biologically connected to him like none of us in this room, we can still have the same faith as Abraham because we've got somebody like Job who did. But the book of Job begins by explaining that Job was somebody who feared God. Now, think about the other books of the Bible that come alongside Job. You've got Job, Proverbs, Psalms. Uh, not in that order, I know. But uh, you've got these different books that talk about the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Job is described as somebody who fears the Lord, which means that he's turning away from evil. He hates things that are evil. Could that be said about you and me? I think one of our biggest problems is that deep down in us, we have too much affection for things that are evil. And Job was somebody who turned away from evil. He also was somebody who had great wealth. He had 7,000 camels uh or seven thousand sheep three thousand camels in california i always, i used to think that it was all just like beach people that surfed and the more i've driven through california it's like a lot of it's desert and a lot of it is also farmland so i've seen because of how much territory there is in california i've seen like giant farms driving through like some of the the valley sort of areas and so job had this huge farm with tons of animals he also had 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. So this was the guy that everybody would have envied. He's the kind of guy that uh, you don't want to hang out with because he makes you feel bad about yourself because of everything he has. And so he's like a perfect candidate for what's going to happen in this book. Look at Job chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 11. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. There's maybe a lot of questions that we might have about this text that we're not maybe going to have all of the answers to in this life. But God in this text is pictured as this king, again, who's got this council. Like, he's got the sons of God, and then Satan comes along. And notice that God asks Satan. God initiates the conversation. And he says to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job? Now, just pause for a second. Do you want God to do that with you? Like in heaven, you've got like this council and then Satan comes along and Satan and God is like, hey, have you thought about Blake? Have you thought about, you know, all these other people? And then there's this kind of discussion that they have about Job and his character and things like that. Here's Satan's accusation. God says that Job is somebody who fears me and turns away from evil and everything like that. And then Satan, he doesn't disagree that Job is a righteous guy, but he's got a different interpretation on why Job is that kind of person. And so he says, well, you put this hedge around him. Like you've given him everything that he would ever want. Like look at his farm, look at his family. Like his life is just set up in such a great, perfect kind of way. And the only reason he really loves you, God, is because of the goodies that he gets from you. By the way, quick little side point. Do you know that there's three times in the Bible where we read the words of Satan? There's other times in the Bible where we know that Satan speaks, but we don't see his words. The three times that Satan speaks is in Genesis. The first one is in Genesis 3, where Satan slanders God to, to man, to Adam and Eve. The second time he speaks is in Job, where he slanders man to God. Like he's talking to God, but he slanders man. The third time that Satan speaks in the Bible is in the temptation of Jesus, where he slanders the God who became man. So that, that makes a cute little three-point sermon if you're ever interested in doing that. But here's, here's what's going on here. Okay, so that's the accusation that Satan gives. Think about that question for yourself. Why do you serve God? There's no shortage of people who, when something really difficult comes into their life, suddenly Jesus becomes interesting to them. There's no shortage of people who, when they think they might gain some earthly thing by pursuing the Lord, then they'll suddenly start being interested in Jesus. The question for us is this. Do we serve God even if we had no earthly benefit from it? Let's ramp this up just a little bit more. And this question may make us a little uncomfortable, but I think it's something that the book of Job would want us to ask. If you knew you were going to go to hell, would you still serve God? If you knew you ultimately wouldn't be with him forever, would you still see him as ultimately glorious and worthy of all praise and adoration? How devoted are we to him? Look at verse 12. Job chapter 1, verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God is going to allow Satan's theory to be tested here. And I like that the book of Job begins by telling us 
that Job was a blameless, upright, doesn't mean he was sinless kind of guy, but he was somebody who was serving the Lord. Because what, what's about to happen with Job did not happen to him because he was a sinner. That's not, it's not like this is divine punishment that's happening in this book. These things are not happening for those reasons. Now, I don't like when I'm preaching like to do alliteration very much, like you know where everything starts with the same letter. Sometimes I think you're just trying to like force the issue. But in the book of Job, you can do this. There's four things that Job loses that all begin with F. So we'll go through each of these. The first F that he lost, the first thing that he lost out on was his finances. Look at Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another And said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. That's a bad day. Three servants, like one after another, come and tell Job, hey, that big farm that you have, it's all been taken away. In the ancient world, your your bank, like where you stored your money, was in your farm. Like your bank was living, breathing, walking animals. Today, we've got like SunTrust and all these different banks that we store our money in and stuff like that. But you're, you were paid when the sheep were, what is it? The, the sheep were sheared, we took the wool off and everything like that. And so he's got these, these three reports that basically your bank accounts just got wiped clean. That's basically what he's hearing here. Does God sometimes allow Satan to touch somebody's finances? And then ask the question, are you still going to serve me? When the 2008 stock market crash happened, do you realize that there were some folks that worked on Wall Street that literally committed suicide? Because here's all, like, I've built my identity around my portfolio and my money and everything like that. Not that money's inherently wrong, but again, when it becomes too important to you, it becomes something that if it was taken away, at least for some folks, they might stop serving God. In, In San Diego, there's a girl that uh, Samantha and I taught the gospel to and she became a Christian and stuff. And we told her before she was baptized, and by the way, you can make this point from the gospels, when Jesus is baptized, what's the next thing that happens to him? He's tempted. It's like when you get baptized, it's like Satan's feelers goes up and he starts going after people to see how committed they are. So we told her, like, Satan's feelers are going to go up and, like, things might start happening. So she becomes a Christian And then some difficulties in work happen because she's trying to serve the Lord more faithfully and it causes some kind of pushback from some people. And she's able to deal with some things, like she loses some friends and stuff like that. But then her her job was actually being threatened where she might not make as much money. And she told us point blank, Samantha and I, she said, God can like take these other things away from me, but if he touches my job and my money, I'm walking away. Uh, What about you? If your possessions were taken away, Would you still see God as worthy of being served? That's the first F. The second one is family. Look at Job chapter 1. This will be broken up into two different ways. Because first of all, his children, and then it's his spouse. But look at first of all, his his children in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another, so here's a fourth messenger, and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. In one moment, Job has just realized that his bank accounts have been cleared, cleaned, cleaned out. I don't know if that's the right phrasing, whatever. You know what I mean. And then he finds out in the next thing that all of his ten children have passed away. Did you notice, by the way, the text doesn't say that Job's children died? Did you notice that? In verses 18 and 19, the messenger says, in, in verse 19 particularly, the house fell, or, and it fell upon who? The young people. It's almost like the news is so bad for him to be able to just flatly say what happened. Have you ever had to give bad news to somebody? And you kind of like, you kind of like hinted around it a little bit, but you couldn't bring yourself to say fully what happened, but the person that you were talking to knew what you meant by it. That's like what these people are, that's what the servant is doing. I believe that Job lost his children, but he can't, he can't bring himself to just say it outright. He says the young people have died. Samantha, my wife, between our, Asher again is three years old, Abigail's nine months, she had a miscarriage. And uh, it happened early on a Sunday morning. And I remember she was like laying in the living room. Her stomach was like killing her. And then uh, she had the miscarriage. And that was a traumatic thing, especially for a woman, because she was the one that was carrying it and stuff like that. It was hard enough, that one experience. Can you imagine losing 10 grown children at one time? In Tennessee, when we first moved there, one of the first people that we got to meet there, his name was Sean Kaplinger. And he, at, he was born with hemophilia. At age nine, he got a blood transfusion. And the blood donor had AIDS. So here's a nine-year-old, through no fault of his own, through no sin of his own, contracts AIDS at age nine. His whole future is gone. Like, prospect, prospects of getting married, all the, like, everything is just ruined in his life. So for the rest of his life, he lives with uh, this terminal illness that he just doesn't know how old he's going to be when he passes away. 36 years old. Uh, two weeks after we moved there, he passes away. And the dad, Jim, he was about 70 years old at the, at the time, he started to wanted to get together with me every week. And every time we got together, he would always say that losing a child is like being in a prison where like it, the pain is just always there. But he said, this is going to be an opportunity for me to serve the Lord more faithfully because I want to see my son one day. Because of the promises of God, I know that I'll be able to see him one day and everything like that. Try to think about that in your life. Uh, and it can be sometimes more subtle than this. What if a child was to fall away from the faith? Would you start dumbing down the Bible's standards so that you could feel like they were okay with God? I would suggest that that's one way that we can walk away from the Lord. But the children, in, in Job's case, that's one aspect to his family letting him down. The second one, though, is his spouse. We're going to flash forward a little bit and then work our way back. But look at his, what happens with his spouse in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not, not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I like, by the way, that it says he didn't sin with his lips, but then he, he told her that you speak as a foolish woman. I guess that means you can tell somebody that they are speaking like a fool and might not be sinning when you say that. Uh, I think that's funny. Anyways, like his wife here, 
is not being very encouraging to him. But I think I used to have a misunderstanding of Job's wife. I've read this before and just thought, well, Job's wife is just kind of mean. Like, just curse God and die. I think, try to imagine this from the perspective of a wife to a husband. You, at this point, we're going to see in just a moment, but Job has got boils from his head to his feet. Like, he's in misery right now. I think Job's wife is saying, like, God's obviously taken everything away. What more can he take away? Just curse him, and then he'll end it. This is a mercy killing. This is what it is. She's not, she's not this, like, heartless person towards Job. She's saying, I can't stand to see you suffering this way. Just go ahead and call God out and have everything ended. It'll be a mercy killing. I think that's the way we're supposed to read his wife and what she's saying here. But try to think about this. I don't know if anybody here has got spouses that are difficult with like their desire to serve the Lord. Uh, they're supposed to be encouraging to you and things like that. If, if you had a spouse that didn't support your pursuit of the Bible, would you still serve God? Would it be still something that would mean something to you? How about this? I'll just go ahead and say it this way. The biggest reason I've seen young people fall away from the faith is out of a pursuit for a spouse. If, if, if you really wanted to be with somebody and then you start dumbing down your standards and things like that, would you be willing to be single? If you knew that the potential person you were going to marry was going to start to pull you away from the faith. Job, his wife lets him down. I, I have to guess that Job would be kind of the kind of guy that even if he never got married, he still would serve God because his spouse wasn't put above God. That's, that's the second F. The first one was the finances. The second one was family. The third one is his flesh. Go back a few verses. Round one ended. We just did a little flash forward. But now Satan's going to come to God again and say, here's a theory. If you will let me affect Job's health, then he'll go ahead and walk away. Look at Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and stroked Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Uh, so here's Satan's theory. You just let me affect his health and he's done. And you see how pitiful Job's situation is. Like boils, I don't, I've never had a boil. I, I know somebody recently that went to, con, is Kanja? I don't know. Some country that I forgot the name of, whatever. Anyways, it was a place where he got a boil because it's the kind of climate that you would get that kind of thing. And he said it was like the most painful thing he'd ever had from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And he's scraping the dead skin off. I have a question about this. Does God ever give Satan the ability and the right to affect somebody's health? What do you guys think about that? Do you think that's... He sometimes will give people that permission. There's two verses in the New Testament that confirm that. In Luke chapter 13, verse 16, it says, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? She was like a hunchover kind of person. Satan had bound her up. Or in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. 
The Bible teaches that God will at times give permission to Satan to affect somebody's health. And what's kind of interesting is in our culture, I, I like to read a lot. I, I read a lot of books, so I spend a lot of time on Amazon looking for book recommendations and stuff. And every now and then, I run across books that are like claiming to be from a Christian perspective, but they deal with your diet. Like the Daniel Fast. Or like body built for God or something like that. I'm still waiting for the John the Baptist diet book, by the way. That one's not come out yet, and I don't know why. But do you know what the underlying message of some of these books are? That if you eat this diet like Daniel and you have your vegetables and stuff, then you'll have a strong body. Well, Job, here's Job. He's a righteous guy. And his flesh gets torn to pieces, basically. You might try to be as healthy as you want to be, but your health can still be taken away from you. So here's the challenge. All right, I'm 29 years old. I just turned 29. I don't really think about my health being taken away from me. That's not something that's in my radar because of how young I am. But I understand is that I start to get older, like certain like functions of my body, like my eyesight is, is actually starting to get a little worse. Like some of those things are kind of like harbingers of what's going to happen to me later. Would I still serve God if the, my health that I value so much was taken away. It's important to think about that. That's, that's the, the third F. The, the last F is Job's friends. Now, jo Satan doesn't directly impact the friends, but by way of circumstances, the friends get impacted here. Look at Job chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> now, Job's, uh, now, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar, Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now, initially, these three friends come with like sincere and godly motives. Like they want to be helpful to Job. Sociologists have said that unless you're fortunate in your lifetime to have three to seven really close friends in your life. On Facebook, they're called friends. Uh, thousands of them that you can have. They should be called acquaintances or something. I don't know. But like the idea of like a real friend. So Job has got three friends. How many of you have got three really, 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 really close friends? He's a blessed man. Not everybody can say that. And so these three friends come and they give a series of speeches to Job after they start opening their mouth saying that the reason you're going through all this suffering is because you've sinned. Have you ever, by the way, ever been counseled, like you're going through something difficult and immediately somebody wants to start saying, well, the reason this is happening is because you made this choice, this choice, this choice, this choice, and this choice. Like, thank you so much. That was very, very helpful. Now, sometimes that is helpful. But sometimes we have to understand that people go through difficult things and it's not because they made a bad decision. So Job gets kind of frustrated with these friends. Look at Job 16. Go over to 16 and look at verses 1 and 2. Job 16, 1 and 2. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. There's his assessment of this. Uh, friends are unique. Here's why friends are unique. I didn't get to choose my siblings. You didn't get to choose your siblings. You get to choose your friends. Friends are kind of like a two-way street. Like, I know that they have to choose you and you choose them and it becomes like a mutual thing. Like, you don't just go up to somebody like, hey, be my friend. And they're like, okay, I guess I have to be. Like, they are a mutual choice, but it's something that's cultivated. When I first became a Christian, my best friend from junior high and high school 
uh, he, he came over for like a sleepover and then I had to go work. And then my mom got close to him too. Like the, my mom and dad knew him really well. And so I had to go to work, but my mom said to my friend, Brian, you've got to stay here for a little bit after Eric goes to work. And then I found out later that my mom told him that Eric has been studying his Bible now and he's like become a Christian and he's all about studying the Bible and he thinks that's really important. So I would recommend you to not hang out with him anymore. My best friend has not talked to me like since that moment. Would you still serve God if your best friends turned their back on you? Would you still serve God if one of those best friends was a Christian at a local church? What's one of the biggest reasons people will say that they're done with church or they're done with the Bible and Christianity because they're hypocrites as if you're not like if you're so righteous, you better go help them. That's a side thing. But if they let you down, would you still see God as worthy of being served? Now, what, what's the verdict of the book of Job? So the, all Job goes through all of these things. And if you read through the whole book, you'll see that Job at times goes a little bit too far in some of the ways that he questions God. He certainly doesn't remain perfect, but do you know what Job does throughout the whole book? He keeps praying. He does not stop praying, showing that he believes in God. He has some degree of trust in God. But after this kind of questioning, God comes in this whirlwind to Job and he gives Job a zoo trip. He goes through and he looks at all these animals. Did you create the ostrich? Who thought about the ostrich? Look at Leviathan. Look at all these great animals. I feed these animals. Do you know when I created them? Do you know how I created them? And so after Job asks all of his questions, God basically puts Job in his place saying, you're not in the position to ask questions. You don't even know how the ostrich was made. You don't, you're not the one who goes out and feeds those things. Like I, I take care of all these things. And look at Job chapter 42. This is one of the most critical things in the book of Job to understanding the message of this book. Job chapter 42, after this whole zoo trip that he goes on, verses 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do you remember the original question of the book? Would you serve God for nothing? Has anything been restored back to Job at this point in the book? The timing of this confession is everything to the book of Job. He still, I imagine, has got the boils on him, the dead skin around him, the friends pointing their finger at him, all this kind of stuff is still happening. And Satan's accusation is that God, the only reason he serves you is because of everything he gets from you. Here's Job, everything's still broken, and then he sees the glory of God, and then in that state, when nothing's been restored to him, he says, I repent. You are worthy of being served. Even though my life has been destroyed and torn apart, you're worthy of being served. What's the answer for you? If everything was taken away, your friends, your flesh, your finances... Um, whatever the other one was. Like if, if these things were taken away from you, would you still see God as worthy of being served? But remember that whole bit at the beginning of the lesson from James 5, that you've seen the compassion and mercy of God from the book of Job. How in the world does the book of Job show God's compassion and mercy? Well, the book of James ends by talking about Steadfastness, And it begins by talking about steadfastness. Do you remember the famous beginning to the book of James? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. I do, I, I, it might surprise some of you, but I don't work out. 
I don't go to the gym. And I know. Uh, but I know theoretically that if you start lifting weights, you actually get stronger by destroying your muscles, right? In a sense. Like, that's probably too strong of a word to use. But when you, when you lift weights, you're actually tearing your muscles, which brings open spaces for more muscle to grow and stuff like that. What the interesting thing about working out is this, that when you're lifting weights, you're feeling like you're getting weaker and weaker. And in the feeling of getting weaker, you're actually getting stronger. So here's maybe something to say about this. Do you want to be perfect, complete, lacking nothing? Like, do you want to be stronger in the faith? Oh yeah, I want that. Well, the way that this is going to happen is by going through difficulties. And you might feel like in the midst of your trial, I'm getting weaker, I'm getting weaker. But if you haven't stopped praying, and if you haven't stopped thinking about God and trying to figure God out, you might feel like you're getting weaker, but you're getting stronger if you haven't given up. God's compassionate and merciful because he allows Job to go through this and he learns things about God through this whole circumstance that he wouldn't have known otherwise. Is there another way, though, in which God is merciful in this book? Go over to Job 42, verses 12 and 13. Job 42, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. God blessed the latter days of Job, even after his arrogant questioning. Has God promised to bless us in latter days? One of, my, one of my good friends said that when he was going through a really difficult time in his life, he actually would get on a motorcycle and drive at night and just hope that a car would hit him. He wasn't being suicidal, but he just kind of thought, like, if it was all to end right now, this would be a good time to do it, God. And uh, he kept saying to himself when he was trying to find strength that there's a Job 42, there's a Job 42, there's a Job 42. What did he mean by that? that there's blessings in the latter days, which might not mean in this physical life that you're going to get what you want. But God has promised to bless us in latter days where we're going to be in a place where there's no more tears and no more crying and, and no more crime, no more anything bad. And ultimately, the reason that we can have this promise is because Jesus came and he didn't have much for finances. His family, at one point, thought he was crazy. His flesh was torn to pieces on the cross and when he was whipped. And his friends, at his most trying moment, forsook him. Job is a prefigurement of Jesus. But you know what the the interesting thing about uh, Job is? I think Job was looking through the lens of faith. What is it that Job 19.25 says? For I know that my Redeemer lives and at last will stand upon the earth. Here's a question about Job, though. Did Job have more knowledge of God than we do? That's just a yes, no question. Did Job know more about God than we do? No. There's no way he could have. Because he didn't have the full revelation of Scripture. He didn't see God in all of his glory that we can see in all of the Scripture. So here's the challenge of Job. Will we, who know more about God than Job did, serve God when similar things happen in our life? I hope that these thoughts have been helpful in that as we think about what our mission and our purpose is, that we've been strengthened in these things. Uh, I don't know if anybody asked any questions.